We're in Exodus chapter 5. We get to the 10 plagues. This is the epic moment in all of scripture. This is, other than what, what the plagues and the cross are in the First Testament is to what the cross is in the Second Testament. Okay, so what the, what the, the plagues and the exodus in the First Testament is going to be the same epic moment for them as the cross is for us in the Second Testament. That's important for you to understand because the plagues and the exodus are going to be referred back to by the prophets and the psalmists more than any other event. This is their Independence Day. This is their salvation. This is the moment that they become a nation. This is the time that they become claimed by Yahweh. This is their adoption. This is everything for them. And so this is by far one of the most important events, which probably is only followed by the giving of the law of Exodus 19, as far as the First Testament go. Without these two events, there is no cross of Christ, period. And so that's what I'll hope to demonstrate tonight. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Release my people so that they may hold a pilgrim feast to me in the desert. But Pharaoh said, Who is this Yahweh that I should obey him by releasing Israel? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not release Israel. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go a three-day journey into the desert so that we may make sacrifices to Yahweh our God, so that he does not strike us with the plague or the sword. And the king of Egypt said to Moses and Aaron, Why do you cause the people to refrain from their work? Return to your labor. Pharaoh was thinking the people of the land are now many, and you are giving them the rest from their labor. So here is the beginning. This is the epic battle. Basically what God is doing is he's going onto the playground and he's picking a fight with the biggest and baddest bully. And he's going to win. And he starts with Pharaoh. And he goes to Pharaoh and he says, you are to let my people go. And Pharaoh responds with, I do not know who this Yahweh is. Now this is important for you to understand. I think I've already mentioned it. It's not that he doesn't know who Yahweh is. It's not that he's never heard of the God of the Hebrews. It's not that he doesn't acknowledge that they worship. It's not an ignorance. It's a, I don't know him as in, I have no relationship with him. I don't acknowledge him as one of the gods worthy of worship. I don't acknowledge his authority, period. Who is it that this God of slaves this pathetic God that has these weakling slave people think that he is to tell me what to do when I am the incarnation of Horus, the God of the sun and the wind and the sky, who is the most mightiest empire in the world right now. This is a challenge of authority. And so that's what he's declaring here. He's saying, I don't recognize your God. Your God is pathetic. Now in the ancient way of thinking, however the people are is what your God is like. So if you're wealthy and you're powerful, then your God is wealthy and powerful. If you're able to destroy any nation, then your God is the most military-oriented God. If you're poor and you're pathetic and you're weak, then your God is poor and pathetic and weak. You have to understand in the ancient world, there is no separation of religion, state, and all that kind of stuff. Religion is everything. God, gods, permeate every way that you think. Because remember, nature is the gods. 
So there's no way of getting away from the gods because everywhere you look, there's a god. The god of the grain, the god of the storm, the god of the sun, the god of the water, the god of the land, the god of the sky, the god they ever breathe. This is everything. And for them, they believe that gods controlled everything. Um, where today we have more of an emphasis on free will and free choice with a slight little every once in a while we talk about fate and destiny. In the ancient world, it was predominantly fate and destiny with a little bit of choice. They believe that the gods determined everything. They determined when you're going to be born, when you're going to die, whether you're going to have victory or not, who you're going to marry, whether you're going to be poor or rich, all that kind of stuff. The only choice you really had was how you worship them and how you sacrifice them and how you sought to manipulate them to get you what you wanted. Um, the, only way you the only power you had was the ability to manipulate them. Maybe that manipulation would work and something would be granted to you. But other than that, the gods determine everything. And so Pharaoh sees him as the, himself as the incarnation of this, as everything. Not only that, Pharaoh was considered the, a bulwark against chaos. He was seen as the incarnation of Horus, and one of his primary jobs was he was a mediator or a medium between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. He was a human who was born, but when he became Pharaoh, he became Horus as well. Horus began to live in him, around him. We don't know exactly how that works because the language of the, well, as it's always says, the Egyptians probably don't even understand their own religion. It's so complicated. So he was this bulwark against chaos. His primary responsibility was to maintain ma'at, M-A-A-T. And ma'at is the harmony in the universe. It's balancing good and evil. And then it's a little bit kind of like Hinduism where you don't really get rid of evil and get good. You balance them because destruction is good because all things need to come to an end to make room for other things like burning a forest down in order to make it more um, rich and more vibrant and more fertile. And so he was a balancer of ma'at. And one of his primary responsibility was to maintain the harmony of the universe. And he was key to helping the gods maintain harmony as much as the humans. Because he was horse and he was human and he was that bridge, that link between the two worlds. This is very important for you to understand. He has to maintain control over Egypt. He has to maintain control of the slave nation. He cannot allow this Yahweh to come in because he's responsible for Ma'at. And if Ma'at fails, the entire universe fails. And that's important for you to understand because God is going to seriously mess up the Ma'at in Egypt when, everything, when the plagues come. This is going to seriously threaten Pharaoh. And this is going to make the Egyptians as well as the Jews or the Israelites question how truly powerful are these Egyptian gods? Because that's what it's really all about. And so God is coming here in a way that he's saying, I have made Moses as a god to Pharaoh in Egypt. So this is basically Moses as the link between heaven and earth, so to speak, facing off before Pharaoh as the Egyptian version of the link between heaven and earth. And so Moses and Pharaoh are going to battle with each other. And what's ultimately at stake here is which God is more legitimate and more powerful and more worthy of devotion. And that's really what this is about. 
These plagues will serve as a judgment on Egypt for their sins and for what they have done to Israel and what they've done to other nations. These plagues will serve as, but primarily, they will serve as a display of God's wonders, a flexing of his muscles, in order to, third, lead people to repentance. And the main reason that God judges people is not just to judge sins, but to lead people to repentance. And so this is what's going on here is this battle. And Pharaoh's basically starting off with this, I do not know. Now this is key because, remember the first two chapters, God was not mentioned, except for like two times the word G-O-D. It's not until chapter 3 that he reveals, I am Yahweh. So the question is, who is this God? The patriarchs didn't have a full understanding of this God. Now they come in and they're slaved, they're worshiping other gods, and some of them are still remaining faithful, but the majority never do. And then God does this amazing revealing of who he is, but only to Moses. Moses is the only one who gets the burning bush. He's the only one that gets the revelation of Yahweh's name and the character and that kind of stuff. And he's not a very good representative right now. It's not like he's ready to go and share the gospel with everybody in Egypt. He's unreluctant. We get this incredible display of I am Yahweh. Immediately followed up with, I don't know who you are and I do not recognize your authority. And so this is the other contrast that's happening of God has just revealed himself and Pharaoh does not recognize that revelation because only Moses has seen this. And so now you have been given a trailer. Yahweh's name in the burning bush is a trailer to the movie, and you're all excited to go see it. But you have no idea because the trailer is a teaser, not a full-blown like every good scene in the movie. And so you're ready. And so this is going to become the full display of this is who Yahweh is. It is important for you to understand that it's both the plagues and the exodus. Just like Jonathan Edwards' great speech from the, um, the, um, the, the um, just one of Puritan days of America. And we all know that speech, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And everybody's like, see, that's what Christians are like. But what the modern day world does not realize, because why would we do this? The next Sunday, Jonathan Edwards' sermon was saved by the grace of Jesus. He intentionally wrote those two sermons together that you must understand how you are sinners in the hands of an angry God before you can first appreciate the salvation and redemption of God. That was a two-part sermon series that the modern-day atheists and liberals don't want to show you that. And so this is what God is doing. Sinners in the hands of an angry God followed by this amazing, compassionate God that redeems and saves and delivers people from the exodus. And so this is a two-part story um, that God is trying to tell here. Now, Pharaoh's upset because he knows Moses has come in, mostly Aaron, and everybody's like, yes, this is it. We don't have to work anymore because God is going to deliver us today. Who said Americanism, instant gratification hasn't always been there? So Pharaoh sees this and says, they're not working because of you. Let's make it even harder. Verse 6, the same day Pharaoh commanded the slave masters and the foremen who were over the people, you must no longer give straw to the people for making bricks, as before let them go out and collect the straw for themselves. 
but you must require of them the same quota of bricks that they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they are crying, let us go sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they will keep it and pay no attention to the lying words. So his response is, I'm going to make it even harder for you. So they were making bricks. So it turns out that as the farmers go out in the fields and they're cutting down the, the crops, there's three parts to a stock of wheat or um, barley or whatever. There is the top part, the little teeny part, that's the grain, and that's what you crush into a flour to make bread. And then there's the stock, which is what we call straw, which is mostly for giving to animal, animals. And then there's the stubble. And that's what the word is being used here, stubble. And stubble is that little leftover that's going into the ground. And that's what they would use to thicken up the mud in order to break and fire the bricks. So it's kind of like if you've ever laid concrete before, seen somebody, they'll put rebar, metal bars in the concrete, and that gives the concrete a much stronger, it ties it all together. And so that's what they're doing. The straw acts as a lattice work to keep all the mud together while it gets baked. So farmers would naturally do this. If they're out there harvesting grain and cutting down the straw, then it wasn't that much more work to correct stubble and drop it off at the slave's house or wherever they're working. But Pharaoh's now saying, my men are never, they're not going to do that anymore. Now you have to go out in the fields and you have to collect the stubble yourself and you have to come back and you still have to meet the same quota. And so he's made it harsh. Now, why is God allowing this to happen? One, because he wants to display his glory. And Pharaoh is like, oh, okay, you can go. One, that's completely unrealistic. And two, that doesn't allow God to display his glory. But the other reason is this is a testing of Israel's faith. This is a testing of Israel's faith. How will they act now that everything didn't just go happy-go-lucky in two hours for them? And that's typically how he works with us as well. So the slave masters of the people and the foremen went out to the Israelites and said, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not giving you straw. Verse 11. You may go out and get it yourselves wherever you can find it, because there will be no reduction in all your workload. So the people spread out through all the land of Egypt to collect stubble for straw. And the slave masters were pressuring them, saying, Complete your work for each day, just like when there was straw. The Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh's slave masters had set over them, were beaten, um, were beaten and were asked, Why did you not complete your requirements for brick-making as in the past, both yesterday and today? Now this is repetitious. You're like, okay, Pharaoh already said this, he's commanded this, now we're just repeating it all. The repetition emphasizes the severity of the problem. The Israelite foreman, verse 15, went and cried to the Pharaoh, Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw is given to your servants, but we are told, make bricks. Your servants are even being beaten, but the fault is with your people. But Pharaoh replied, you are slackers, slackers. That is why you're saying, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. So now get back to work. You will not be given straw, but you must still produce your quota of bricks. The Israelite foremen saw that they were in trouble, and when they were told, you must not reduce the daily quota for your bricks. Verse 20, when they went out from Pharaoh, they encountered Moses and Aaron standing there to meet them. And they said to them, may Yahweh look on you and judge you, because you have made us a stink in the opinion or in the mind of Pharaoh and his servants, so that you might be, you have given them an excuse to kill us. 
So did they pass the test? No. Their immediate response is, you're the problem. Now, we all know who technically the problem is. It's Yahweh who made this all happen, and really realistically, the Pharaoh who refuses to give in. But they went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is a man that they can't really resist, so that doesn't work. And they can't really address Yahweh because most of them probably don't even believe in him or worship him. And so all they're left with is the representatives, Moses and Aaron. And so they complain to him, and they're upset. And so this is important because this reveals the lack of faith of Israel. Now, why is that important? Because despite that, Yahweh is still going to honor his promises and deliver him. I mean, if it was you and I, we were like, we'd be like, fine. If you don't want help, I'm not going to help you. Or I held the door open for you and you got mad at me, so that's the last time I'm ever going to do that for anybody. And so the reality is that's how we respond. And yet these people are complaining. They haven't been worshiping Yahweh. They're not trusting him now. They're complaining. And Yahweh is still going to save them. Yahweh is still going to redeem them. And that's important. For you to understand, this is a constant theme throughout the Bible. So, verse 22 Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Lord, now, this is why it's important for you to understand Yahweh. Notice in your Bibles that Moses returned, the narrator tells you, to Yahweh, L O R D, all capital letters. But Moses said, Lord, as in Adonai, Sir, Master. Notice there's no relationship there. He's, he's not addressing them as I am with you, that sovereign, almighty God. He's just saying, Sir, Master, why have you caused trouble for this people? Why did you ever send me? From the time that I went to speak to Pharaoh in your name, he has caused trouble for this people, and you have certainly not rescued them. See, I told you so. I told you that it was dumb to send me. I told you this would not work. I told you what if they did not believe me. This is your fault. Now that's audacity. You just encountered God at the burning bush. You have the audacity to say, I not, no, 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 no. And then when he demonstrates his anger on you and sends a plague of sickness on you just because you didn't get circumcised or your son didn't, then he turns around and says, this is your fault. This is not Moses of great faith. This is not Moses' great faith. And like I mentioned last week, it's important for you to understand because God does not choose the epitome of faith. He chooses the most pathetic people and grows them into the epitome of faith. And that's important. And so Moses starts off by complaining. And it's kind of like Adam in the garden who says, it's your fault because you put the woman in the garden with me. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Now, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For compelled by my strong hand, he will release them, and by my strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. God's response is, it's all going according to plan. This is exactly... I, Moses, if you remember, I did tell you that I was going to harden Pharaoh's heart too, so that he would not let them go so that it would ultimately happen. God spoke to Moses and said to him, verse 2, I am Yahweh. Now, 
One, he's repeating once again, I am with you, even though you and the people feel like I've abandoned you. But two, I told you my name, use it. <laughs> and I wonder if there's a little rebuke there. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they were living as resident foreigners. I have also heard the groaning of the elders whom the Egyptians have are slaving. And I remembered my covenant. Now this is important. Remember, once again, he's repeating. This is the third time in just two chapters, three, that he's repeated, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have remembered my covenant. This is very important for you to understand because God keeps invoking his character. He keeps invoking his covenant faithfulness, his covenant promises over and over and over again. That's what he wants you to get from this is his character, his faithfulness, his commitment. But this is also where I told you last week where he mentioned, I appeared to them as El Shaddai. That word God Almighty is El Shaddai. Now, El Shaddai doesn't really mean God Almighty if you want an explanation on that, go back to Genesis 17 notes in audio. But he's saying, they did not know me by that name. And this is where he's making it very clear. I'm going to remake myself known to you in a way the patriarchs didn't know me. Gordon Winham, who is like, like top dog, one of the most respected First Testament scholars that is out there. I mean, he's respected by everybody, even the people who hate the Bible. He basically makes the point that he thinks that Yahweh was not actually used, the word at all, in the patriarchs, because nobody has the name Yahweh in their name. A lot of times people would name their children after their gods, um, like Elijah, or Elijah is Elijah, and, and so it's after Yahweh. And the fact that you don't see any of that until after Moses shows that it's not just that they don't know him by his character. They don't even know the name Yahweh, period. But whatever case, it's important to understand that God is saying that you're going to see me in a revelation that nobody has ever experienced me before. And that puts even more emphasis on the plagues and the exodus and the uniqueness of what they are. And so he says this, I have heard my people groaning. I've heard them complaining, and I'm responding to that. And this is important because God is saying two things here. I honor my promises. I am faithful even when you are not faithful and you're not trusting me. But the second thing he's saying is your suffering moves me to compassion. Your suffering moves me to compassion. It bothers me. I have to act when I hear you suffering because that's who I am. That's who I am. And that's so important to understand because there is no other God out there that hears your suffering and feels by its character a compelling need to respond in order to save you. And the Israelites don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. Therefore, verse 6, tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from your enslavement to the Egyptians. I will rescue you from the hard labor that they impose. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you to be, for, 
take to myself for a people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you up out of enslavement to the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Now you should hear that over and I am with you. And I will come and save you because I am with you. And I am going to display my glory in order to bring you the land that I will be with you. Over and over he's saying, this is it. Everything I promised to Abraham is coming true at this moment. This is my ultimate goal, to give you a land where I can dwell with you. And I'm going to do this by the plagues. So verse 9, Moses told this to the Israelites. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and hard labor. And then Yahweh said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that he must release the Israelites from the land. But Moses replied to Yahweh, If the Israelites did not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with difficulty? Now this is important. Because you can almost imagine Moses saying, Okay, I'll go back to the Israelites. I am Yahweh has sent me. He's going to, I mean, it's probably not that bad, but... There's no enthusiasm. There are only two prophets in the entire Bible who blatantly disobeyed God when God said go. Jonah and Moses. And just like Jonah said, I'm not going, God. And God forces him to go. I doubt that he was very enthusiastic as he preached in Nineveh. It's like when I tell my kids to clean up and they realize, okay, I'll clean up. And they're like throwing things and thing and kicking things. It's like enthusiasm. Thank you. Okay. That's Moses. You have to realize that there's only two prophets of God that have ever resist his calling. And it's Moses and Jonah. And Jonah's like a horrible guy. Okay, if you really understand the story. The difference is Moses changes. Moses is going to change. And so there's not enthusiasm here. There's no enthusiasm. There's no desire to serve and obey God. Yet God is still going to accomplish what he wants, just like Jonah. No enthusiasm, but Nineveh still repents. No enthusiasm, but Pharaoh's still going to release Egypt. And this is really powerful because, one, it will show you that despite their lack of faith, he's going to still save them. The fact that Moses is a scumbag right now, I mean, kind of is. He's saying this to the God of the universe. And yet God is still going to use him and redeem him. But at the same time, God doesn't need any of these people to accomplish what he's going to do. He doesn't need them in order to accomplish. But he'll use them. Verse 13, So Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge for the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. Now, much of what I've just gone through tonight is very repetitious. Okay? There's, there's some parts in the Bible where you're kind of like, okay, we kind of already know this. We've, but that's the whole point. The repetition is constantly emphasizing their lack of faith, the testing, at the same time that it allows God to demonstrate his faithfulness. And this is building the anticipation. Okay? The more and more you see their lack of faith, the more and more God's faithfulness begins to shine, the more and more you begin to anticipate him finally doing something. That's intentional. Because remember, paper is super expensive and nobody just writes to write. Okay, This isn't like Facebook where you just fill pages with a nothingness. Okay, It's expensive. Everything is intentional, including the repetition. 
Any questions, comments? Verse 14 of chapter 6. These are the heads of their fathers, the households, the son of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and then the sons. Now, we're given another genealogy, and you're like, yay, didn't we get into genealogy in chapter 1? Do we need another one? The genealogy, notice, will begin to focus on Simeon and then go to Levi. So it goes Reuben and then Simeon and Levi, which are the first three sons, and then it stops at Levi and begins to really develop Levi's family. Why? This accomplishes three purposes. First, it intentionally links Moses and Aaron back to Jacob and Abraham, showing you that they truly have the right. Because right now, this is, where, this, this is showtime after this genealogy. And so these are the representatives of Yahweh. Do they really truly have the right to represent Yahweh as members of the covenant? Because right now they don't look like members of the covenant. Moses isn't circumcising his son. He's doing a whole lot of complaining. He won't even use the name Yahweh. The genealogy shows you that Moses and Aaron do go back to Abraham. They are children of the covenant. They have the right to represent the covenant. Okay, and so that's what, um, so it's doing that. The second thing that it's doing is it authenticates the priesthood of Aaron. Because the priesthood of Aaron is going to become a huge focus when we get to the latter part of Exodus and a huge part of Leviticus. And then the Israelites are going to challenge the priesthood of Aaron in the book of Numbers, and it's going to have to be re-solidified. And so this is establishing Aaron's right to be the priest by linking him back to the promises. The other thing it does is it emphasizes that Moses is also Levite. A lot of times Moses emphasized so much as a prophet that we forget that he's also a priest. And he has every right. So that what the point is, he is going to make the sacrifices that will initiate the covenant at Mount Sinai. But non-priests are not allowed to make sacrifices. So this is also legitimizing Moses as a Levite to remind you, yes, he is a prophet, and he's not the high priest because Aaron is, but he kind of is the high priest because he's a Levite and the prophet. And so during the time of Moses and Aaron, there's going to kind of be two high priests, even though never, ever again will there ever be two high priests, there will only be one. And so this is legitimizing their right to represent the covenant, and it legitimizes both of them as priests to make sacrifices in order to initiate the new covenant that will be coming and to make purification for Israel because they need a whole lot of purification right now. Okay, so this is the purpose of that genealogy here. And it's also going to give you the names of the sons of Aaron who are going to play key roles, two of which in Leviticus, and then Eleazar later in the book of Numbers and going into Judges. So that's important for you to understand. So that's the rest of chapter 6.